Good morning, please be seated. In the case of uh, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation et al. against Aidan Corbin et al. For the appellants, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation et al., Danielle W. Burnett, KC, and Danielle H. Coles. For the intervener, British Columbia Civil Liberties Association, Mr. Patrick Williams and Victoria Tortora. For the respondent, Aidan Coben, Trevor B. Martin, and Joseph J. Saunier. For the respondent, His Majesty the King, Leslie A. Rosica, KC, and uh, Louise Kenworthy, KC. Uh, Mr. Burnett. Good morning, Chief Justice and Justices of the Court. I will be addressing the statutory interpretation of Section 648 of the Criminal Code for 45 minutes. My colleague, Mr. Coles, will take over for the final 15 minutes of our submissions to address how the impact on openness affects that interpretation. At the heart of this appeal are 11 words which are the opening to Section 648 of the Criminal Code. The modern approach looks to their text, their context, and seeks to harmonize their meaning with the legislative scheme Parliament intended. Let's work through those steps. The text. The modern approach begins there, and that can't be forgotten. And it tells us to look at the ordinary and grammatical meaning of the words. After permission to separate is given to members of a jury. What is the ordinary and grammatical meaning? After cannot mean its opposite. It cannot mean before. Permission to separate cannot mean where there's been no permission to separate. And a jury cannot mean where there's no jury. What is the context? The context includes... But you can't, sorry, I'm going to stop you because you're not adopting the modern approach if you say after reading the text, if you come to a conclusion about what it means. You have to keep going. So even if it seems self-evident to you what uh, separate or jury means. It's too early to say what it means before you've gone to the other steps. That, that's Bell Express view. Indeed. So when I read your factum, I ask myself, now, and I don't want to sound unfair here, but I ask myself while you're paying lip service to the modern approach, you're actually bringing us back to a literal approach. Is, 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 and, and what I've just heard 
sounds a bit like that. Now, I may be mistaken. You, you, you'll tell me that that was a preliminary conclusion, that you haven't decided what those opening words mean because you haven't done the rest. Is that, is that maybe the better way to put it? I entirely agree that the, the modern approach requires us to go further, and that's my intention, and to go further without lip service in a way that, that, that digs into the context, digs into the, harm, the harmony. But it can't be forgotten that, that the modern approach, as, as enunciated by the court, begins with what are, the, what are the grammatical and ordinary words. So let's look to their context next as, as, as going through the process that, that, uh, that you described, Justice. The context includes the immediately preceding provision which is the provision that gives the judge the power to permit the jurors to separate and is very concrete about that. And if they don't, if they're not given permission to separate, the jurors must be kept in charge of a sheriff. That's part of the context. It's not, it's not some abstract concept of an abstract jury and a notional permission to separate. It's a very concrete step that the court takes with live human beings and so it must be understood that that is what, what is going on in its context. The context includes the previous provisions as well, and that includes Section 645, of which there's been much discussion. It's said to be part of the evolving context, and it is. But it is not a publication ban provision. Parliament could easily have made it one if it chose to do so. In fact, Parliament was presented with that option in 1994 and explicitly chose not to do so, and we know from Hansard why. Mr. Burnett, can we take into account what happened in 1994? Should we not limit the exercise to uh, 648 and 645.5 at the time of its adoption? Not, uh, how the, what happened regarding the amendment and the fact that the amendment was dropped? Uh, what impact does it have on the exercise of statutory interpretation? In my submission, coupled with the explicit Hansard record that we have of the reason for the amendment being dropped, it's powerful evidence that can be relied upon for the purpose. Parliament, a legislative choice can be a choice not to make an enactment. And that must be respected, and it's not for the court to come and make that enactment. And, and, and so, when presented with the option, and yes, we're moving to the time of 645.5, but that is the entire logic of the other side, which that, that changes everything. Well, it doesn't change everything because we know they chose no publication ban then. We know they were presented with a publication ban option, an automatic, I should say, publication ban option, and chose a discretionary one instead, leave it, leave it as, as it was. And so, and so I say that that, that, that is powerful evidence uh, that can be relied upon. If we only had the bare, um, the bare dropping of an amendment without explanation, that might be one thing, but we don't. We have, we have clear... position that uh, what happened here is not an oversight. It, precisely. Okay. It is not an oversight. In fact, when I mean, Parliament enacts 645, only two sections or three sections away from 648 does not put in a publication ban. 1994 is presented with an automatic ban, rejects it. Senate rejects it, Commons accepts that. 
19, uh, 2005, I believe it is, they revisit Section 648 to change uh, broadcast to document. But their, their attention is on the provision. The issue was live across the country. Parliament is not ignorant to these things. And Parliament made a choice to leave things as they are, which, as we know, is a, is a discretionary ban, a powerful tool that can be used to protect trial fairness. You've placed great emphasis on the, the introductory words and so said those are the most important words after permission to separate. I wonder whether what the most important words might be are the prohibition in 648.1, which begins with the words no information, because there, is the word, there are the words, of course, after permission is to separate, but there are also temporal words in 645.5 before any juror, panel of, juror or panel of jurors is called. So that deals with the antecedent time. And then the words to deal with any matter that would ordinarily or necessarily be dealt with in the absence of a jury after it is sworn. So that gets to the language of uh, uh, Justice, Chief Justice Lesage in the Bernardo case in the idea that this is a deeming provision. To deal with any matter, if you were dealing with that matter before a jury, you would have the whatever the powers would be, or whatever would flow if you were dealing with that matter before the jury is called. And that would include the publication ban, it seems to me. So if one reads the words contextually to deal with any matter, recognizing the temporal words in 645.5, which seems to me to, uh, you know, to be applicable with the prohibition in 648.1, we get to a situation where, um, the would order, reading it contextually, there would be a ban, and it wouldn't actually be, we wouldn't have this gray zone we were talking about yesterday, because it would really be anything that could be brought uh, after trial, after the jury is impaneled, would be subject to the ban. And that would include, for example, a constitutional challenge. If you have a jury impaneled, and then you say, I want to bring a constitutional challenge, that it seems to me would be, the jury would be excused, the challenge would be brought, and the ban would apply. So it seems to me that we don't have to debate the nature of the motion. It's really anything that could be brought uh, after the jury is impaneled would be subject to the ban. So I'm wondering, I've said a lot, but I'm wondering what your reaction is to that reading of the provision. Yes. Um, let me address three, three things that, that in my submission arise from, 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 um, from those thoughts. The first is the logic of, of treating uh, Section 645 as creating some sort of deeming that there's a jury and deeming that there is a um, permission to separate has been given. With, 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 with the greatest of respect to Justice Lesage, it's too much of a stretch. It just, it just stretches the words to an unnatural level. Um, to, to, to deem that these very concrete steps that are laid out in the criminal code right in the context of Section 648 are, are to, to be treated as, as occurred when they haven't occurred. Secondly, in my submission, Section 645 operates in harmony with On Section that first point, though, isn't, isn't the deeming would ordinarily be? It is a, it is a counterfactual in a sense, right? In, in, the, in 645.5. So, before, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I, I wanted to make, ask my question. Isn't the words 
uh, don't those words would ordinarily uh, apply counterfactual and that is what a deeming provision is. It, is. it deems something that isn't actually the case in fact. Yes, but what it is deeming are the, are the uh, hearings that would ordinarily have occurred after, under the previous law that could only occur after a jury was impounded. It doesn't, it doesn't start deeming the other events that, I, that I've described, the, the, given the permission to separate the impaneling of the jury itself. The hearings themselves are, 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 are hearings that would have ordinarily occurred. And I say two things. First, I was starting to say that the one of the things that 645 does in harmony with Section 648 is it improves. When, when, once you've impaneled a jury and you're ready to start what I will call the trial proper, there should be no interruptions. You shouldn't be the, the objective that we know from the Hansard from, from when 645 was, was imposed. It was, it was about not having a situation where jurors were, were excessively delayed or, or impaneled and then sent home for days. Let's have our impanelment and giddy up. Let's, let's move to the trial with little interruption. 645 allows that by, by, in harmony by allowing the other provisions to, the, the other hearings to occur before you've impaneled the jury and begun that trial proper. And the two periods of time, we talk about it all being in law trial, but the two periods of time, it must be understood, are very different. When a jury is impaneled, given permission to separate, and the trial is proceeding, there is all due haste, and, and not, not haste, but, but all due avoidance of interruptions. So that so the jury and the trial can do its work. The previous portion, although we call it trial, is a period that plays out in, in large cases over months or even more than a year with hearings dotted along the way in a much more organized and I'll, I'll, I'll say slow as, as because there's demands on the system um, approach where, where there's not the same sense and, and those, those hearings um, can include issues such as, I mean, you, would, you wouldn't have, I mean, you have an automatic ban once a jury is impaneled to avoid the interruption. A discretionary ban at that earlier stage when things are playing out over months can fit right within that plan harmoniously. And they never delay the trial. The constitutional challenge in our case, for example, I mean, it was never a question of delaying the trial. It fit in with that schedule. We had, we had 15 months of hearings. And so, and so days were set aside for that. And yes, it took time, but it was important time to deal with a constitutional issue, as it would be with um, um, dealing with a, a discretionary publication ban. There was some talk yesterday about, well, that's going to put burden on the system, and it's not going to delay, delay, delay the trial. And to the extent that it takes some resources and takes some time, of course it does. You are balancing constitutional values here, balancing and, and not putting them in hierarchy to each other, you're balancing the, the vital importance of openness with fair trial, and, and that takes some genuine time, although, you, although Dagenet gives us a nice framework. How can you say that it doesn't delay two things? How do, can you say it doesn't delay the trial? I just don't see it. And um, the other issue is you, you dissect a trial into two parts. I was a trial judge. The trial started when I started sitting even before the jury. So you talk about trial proper, 
and you dissect it into two parts. I, I don't agree with that because the trial starts as soon as I start hearing pre-hearing matters, not just because I have an impaneled jury. Yes, indeed. The the I, I completely agree that the trial has begun, but you'll know from being, uh, from being on the trial judge that, that the phases are somewhat different, right? When, when, once the impaneled jury and, and, and the evidence become being called in front of the jury, um, there's a different um, um, sense of, of getting it done at that stage and, and, and not, not breaking it up, as, as, whereas, whereas beforehand, you could, you could might, there might be a month in between hearings. Well, there isn't, there isn't, because at the end of the day, we still have Jordan, and what happens before is just as important what happens after the impaneled, and the, this court was really clear about the timelines, and I come back to my question yesterday about now every time, if we follow uh, your argument, every time that uh, an issue arises, if I understand your, your pleadings, then we're going to have to have a, a separate uh, Dajna Mentuk Sherman uh, motion, and that is going to lead uh, to uh, delays. Let me explain what I meant by not delaying the trial. Um, and I'll use the example of the very case that's before the court. In Coburn, a trial date was set, months of, of, of pre-impanelment, pre-jury selection, uh, hearings on various matters were set, where, where in that case a constitutional challenge, but it could easily be a, be a Dagenet-Sherman uh, motion, was, was, um, was fit into the pre-impanelment stage, it was not fit in in a way that, that caused the trial date to move. That's what I mean by no trial was delayed. Some time was taken, important time. Um, and, and in response to the, the, um, the point about, about you know, you know, whether every time an issue of, of a ban arises, we're into a, a Dagenet-Sherman hearing, what happens uh, in, in reality is that um, publication bans, when, when, now that we have a framework from Dagenet, from Sherman, people know the score. Council don't ask for publication bans as often when they're, they're not going to fly. Media Council, and I, and I know this from my own experience, don't oppose publication bans when, when opposition is not going to fly. Some examples came out yesterday about a, con, you know, a confession, a, a statement. That's the most obvious example where there's not even a point in, in opposing that ban. If one looks to the example that we have right before us of Alberta, 20 years plus, 20 years plus of experience, you will not find a mountain of, of uh, Dagenet Mentuk motions. You will find some. You will find somewhere where they've been allowed, somewhere they've been dismissed, but it's, it's a relatively modest number considering how long that, ex I'll call it that, that example before our eyes has occurred. In very challenging cases, one is called Trang, for example. Judge in Alberta uh, faced 37 accused in an organized crime case, a very challenging case where there, where there could have been all kinds of motions of that nature. The judge made the decision on those circumstances to issue a blanket ban under his discretion on all admissibility hearings, which saved what would have otherwise been perhaps 
a number of Dagenet and Sherman kinds of hearings. And when the circumstances permit, and when we know from Dagenet and Sherman you, it's all about the circumstances, um, that's a legitimate choice that can be made. Uh, and council work to streamline these things. No one is in the, in the business of trying to, trying to uh, create a necessary work and a necessary delay. But you still need uh, judicial resources uh, if, if you add up uh, motions before the trial has begun. So that's, that's, uh, that's a consequence of your, of, your, uh, of, your, of your argument in a way. But one way to, one reason why um, judges will hear voir dire, for instance, or that type of motions before that the, that the jury is, is formed is to avoid delays. In other words, that to avoid the, the fact that once the jury is formed, the judge will send the jury, the jurors to their home for two, three, four, five days, one week, two weeks. And uh, because trials these days, you know, uh, are getting difficult and uh, the resources are scarce and um, the Jordan delays are there and the judges want to avoid delays. So that's, that's a practical reality. And I know it's not a legal or judicial argument, but it's a practical reality. Uh, and so a hearing which could be done before the jury's form is as valid as a hearing done after the jury is formed. And there's no difference in so far as 648 is concerned. In other words, the type of uh, non-publication ban is concerned. I entirely agree, Chief Justice, that resources are I'm not uh, pretending otherwise. Resources are required in that pre-jury stage if there are discretionary bans. They are, it, it's, it's not helpful to exaggerate those. It is also not helpful to minimize the importance of those hearings and the balancing of constitutional values. The choice, uh, the, the consequence of that use of resources um, was put as the result of my argument. I say it's the result of Parliament's choice to leave those as permissive, a permissive stage. That was the words of Alan Rock in, in Parliament. Leave, leave them permissive, not mandatory. Can I and ask you, was it Parliament's choice to leave this, to leave uh, 645? Uh, as it is at the time it was enacted. I'm not talking about what happened after with the amendment to 648, but at the time of the enactment of 645-5, don't you think that it was just a, an oversight by Parliament? Because they were saying all those motions protected, uh, protected under 648, the same motions, it is the same substance which will be heard before before the, the jury is selected. So do you think that, is there evidence in the file that in 1985, at the time of the enactment of 645-5, Parliament wanted to uh, continue just with the discretionary ban? In my submission, it, it would be too much of a stretch to, to say that Parliament made an oversight when enacting a provision only two sections away from okay. a publication ban provision as to, well, what should we do about that? Well, which, yes, it's true that, I'm, I'm no, sorry. Go ahead, finish your answer. It, it, it's true that, that um, the Hansard indicates the impetus for 645 was focused on ensuring jurors weren't sent home. I, I agree. Which brings but, us back to our interpretive exercise here. Did it, in fact, leave a gap? 
And so I would uh, come back and ask you about the words. Um, uh, as Justice Jamal said, the substance is the prohibition. No information regarding any portion at you know, which the jury is, uh, is present, is not present, shall be published. And you started with the meaning of those opening words. And I guess my question to you is, once you look at it in context, are those opening words uh, in your submission to condition precedent, or can they be seen as describing what was the beginning of a trial and could only be the beginning of a trial at the time it was enacted, and that that shifted with the, um, not, uh, what, what, and what, I, I won't use the word shifted, that the significance of those words um, have to be read in light of section 645.5, which now allows those exact same kinds of motions to be heard at a different point in time, but still as part of the trial. It's still a judge before whom an accused is to be, to be, to be tried. It's still any matter that would ordinarily or necessarily, and those are very broad words, be dealt with in the absence of the jury. So I'm coming back, you started with the words that I think you were arguing had to be a condition precedent to the operation of the prohibition. And my question to you is that once you look at text, context, purpose, are we not, is, it, is there not a strong argument to be made that those words are not a condition precedent, but a description of when those kinds of matters, at least at that point in time, could, could actually arise. And now they can arise earlier. Long-winded question, but I think you know where I Thank you very much for that question. I do indeed say that the words are a condition precedent. And, 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 and it's not, the condition precedent is not the selection of a jury. The condition precedent is, after the selection of the jury, permission to separate is given. And, and, and that it's, when you understand the words in, those, in that sense, it is a decision. We're going to have this very uh, anti-openness provision of an automatic, discretionless publication ban. That's one, and, and there's a reason for it, just to protect uh, the jury from, from uh, getting information. From hearing, that, yeah, from hearing but, information that they would ordinarily not be allowed to hear. The, the, um, the condition precedent, therefore, is to take this, this very anti-openness provision and limit it to only when it's absolutely necessary. It's only necessary when the jurors can go home at night and potentially watch the news, as opposed to being in the charge of the sheriff. And the end point, unlike other provisions in the code, is when the jury retires to consider it verdict, its verdict, where it's also in the charge of a sheriff. And so, so there's a deliberate decision you can see through the text that, that we're going to have this condition that confines this anti-openness automatic ban for as, as little as possible. And then when 645 comes along, the question that was posed, Justice, was, was did it leave a gap? Well, indeed, the... Um, Minister of Justice Rock referred to there being a gap as being the reason that the 1994 amendment was, was brought into place. And so there was a sense that there was a gap. I would say we don't really know that. We don't, we don't to, to me, 
the suggestion that Parliament didn't know about a section two sections away is, 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 is something of a stretch. But assuming there's a gap, we get to the, the, the question of the court's role for legitimate gap filling versus effectively my amending. Was, my question was, I thought I started my question by saying, we are being asked to interpret these sections to determine whether there is a gap or not. So I don't think we can assume there is a gap. Yes, I, I agree. If, if the court determines there's a gap, what happens as the next question of the analysis is, is, is there a, um, a gap filling? And we know from this court's decision in Liberty Net, for example, other decisions about the, the very limited role to fill gaps and the very important sensitivity the court must have to taking the role of parliament and, and to effectively be amending the legislation to fill a gap. That's crossing a line. The decision, the Ontario decision in Wright, which, which I know you've seen and is referred to in my factum, really has a very powerful logic as to, as to, as to how those courts who have, who have treated uh, the, um, the interpretation as a gap-filling exercise, we're going to now have a publication ban on all of the hearings even before a jury has been given permission to separate, notwithstanding the word after. But that is crossing a line. It's crossing a line into Parliament's role, and, and it's not for the court to do. In LibertyNet, the, the logic was, was, you know, there was, there was a, um, a, a, a gap, and yet it was not a gap that, that, that was, was absurd. It wasn't, it wasn't a gap that, 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 that created some, it, was, it had to do with the issuance of injunctions. It was not a, a gap that, that um, even though one might make a different policy choice, one, one might prefer there to have been a power there, the court couldn't, in all honesty, say, you know, that, that, that I need to fill this gap to ensure that there is, uh, that there is, um, that, the, that there was an oversight and, and I mean, the, the, the rules, there's a Court of Appeal decision talking about how, how you know, gap filling requires there be an oversight, it being clear that Parliament would have filled the gap in the way that the Court is thinking of doing. None of those are present here. I mean, an oversight? I, I doubt it. Certainly we know from 1994 that, that we have positive evidence that that is not what Parliament have done, right? We know Parliament was faced with that very choice, so we couldn't have a clear evidence that, that, that Parliament, Parliament chose otherwise in terms of, in terms of its, its gap filling. Can I just bring you back? I'm looking at your outline again and under your point number four where you, we, you talk about if we're in agreement with um, the meaning, the, as you cited, the unnatural meaning of the respondents, then you say they're ambiguous and should be interpreted narrowly as a penal provision. Uh, Explain to me your position on that, please. Yes, indeed. The, we say that the, that the words of Section 648 are not ambiguous. After cannot mean before. After cannot mean before. They're not ambiguous. And I say, if, and we have, it, we have an entirely contrary interpretation on the other side. 
in which after apparently means before. If that interpretation, uh, if the words are capable of that interpretation, by definition, the words are ambiguous. We know, that we know from the law that just because courts have disagreed, that doesn't mean that there's ambiguity. But, but, but if we've got a meaning that I, I, I submit that nobody could deny is, is, a, is the, the uh, grammatical or obvious meaning of the words, if there's another meaning contrary, then, then we have the ambiguity. And, and, and we know from the law that, that the, the rule on, on narrowly interpreting penal provisions to ensure that criminal consequences don't don't flow more widely than than uh, than the statute can be read. Um, that once you have that ambiguity, you you are um, um, it, it ushers in that rule of construction, so that somebody who is sitting in court, whether it's a reporter or a blogger, who who is you know prior to prior to jury impanelment, prior to any jury being given permission to separate. Even if they were to read the criminal code, would look at, well, I'm, I'm clearly not in there. There's no banning place. I'll publish, and now I'm going to be charged criminally um, because of a different, a different reading. Remarkably, the respondents argue that the words are unambiguous. I presume it's to avoid this penal interpretation rule. They, were, they, they argue that the words are unambiguous in the other direction. And yet, when one reads the words, that's, that's just too much. You can't, you can't, you can't, you can't get there from here. Mr. Burnett, could I'm here? Yes. Um, when you started, you were talking about after not meaning before. I understand your argument there, but you you talked about the after being important um, because we're avoiding interruption once the jury's in place, and I understand that argument. But what I want to ask you about is that that's not the only reason is to avoid interruption and to keep a trial apace. I mean, the whole purpose of any publication, Ben, in relation to a jury is also to ensure that they are not uh, um, uh, apprised of information that isn't evidence in the trial upon which they have to limit their their responsibilities and their judgment. It's kind of a, the sanctity or the purity, the integrity, whatever it is, words we want to use. But how does that fit, that purpose, that object, fit with your meaning uh, that you're uh, proposing? Thank you, Justice Martin. Uh, I wanted to talk about purpose. And what I say is that any publication ban provision by definition, has to have more than a single purpose. One obvious purpose is the one that you've just enunciated, is to, is to keep the sanctity of, of the jury and ensuring that it, that it, it proceeds uh, based upon only the evidence it hears in court. But when you're dealing with a publication ban, there is always another purpose that Parliament is obliged by our Constitution to be pursuing, and that is openness. And that is to ensure that the infringement, which a publication ban is, is always, of Section 2B is minimized. And so, and so we have this, um, this tension that has to be resolved, we know from, from Dagenet, not by putting one constitutional value in a hierarchy above the other, but by finding a balance. And so when you, when you, when you in, from that lens, look at the wording of, of Section 648, I say it's, it's actually quite elegant in, how, in, 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 in 
a provision that ensures both the, both the non-interruption, we're not going to have arguments about every last publication ban, the sanctity of the jury, but also a limiting of, of, of that provisions of impact on, on Section 2B of the Charter. So, so in, 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 and of course, that's an evolving, um, the, the section precedes the Charter, but it's an evolving concern. And that's what we see that in the 1994 debates where, where you know, we need to be very conscious of that as we, as we proceed. But even, and of course, even before the Charter, openness was a fundamental value. I mean, McIntyre was a, was a pre-Charter decision. Um, and, yet the, and yet the fundamental openness of the courts and the presumption of it um, was, uh, was, was considered a, a hallmark of justice and, and remains, remains such to this day. Can I ask you about uh, the purpose of 645.5 then? Because I think it's the same concern I had yesterday, that uh, everybody agrees it was an efficiency measure, right? It was an attempt to avoid uh, the jury being um, sent out in the context of a trial. That was clearly a purpose. Your argument rests on a second purpose, that it was Parliament's purpose somehow to subject matters that otherwise would have been subject to a publication ban under 648 to somehow now be free game for the media. And uh, if the accused or the Crown wants a ban, they've got to go and get a discretionary Dajane Mendoq Sherman order. So what is there that supports that second purpose? Because it does seem to me to be either express or implicit in the argument that it isn't 645.5 isn't just a, an efficiency measure, but an attempt to cast open the courts, uh, even if it would be what would otherwise would have been deemed as prejudicial to the jury. Uh, and would have undermined a fair, to the accused, excuse me, and it would have been potentially in, injurious to a fair trial. What, what, what do we, what, what's supportive of that being Parliament's purpose in 645.5? Um, well, Justice Jamal, the, the um, I don't say that Section 645 had an object of throwing open the, the pre- um, the hearings that, are, that take place pre-impanelment, uh, um, um, it, it was, a, it was an, as you say, an efficiency provision. We know that from Hansard. The, the impact, and maybe I'm saying the same thing, but the impact of not amending Section 648 or of, and of, of, of choosing not to include a publication ban provision in 645 is, is to leave publication bans as, as permissive, not mandatory. They, they um, Why would Parliament have done that? Because the, the concept of, a, of an automatic publication ban, when, when you think about it, has a, a remarkable destruction or violence to the open court principle. An automatic publication ban on hearings that are going to go on for months, in our case, 15 months, so, so to, to, in my submission, to ask why Parliament would do that, it's, it's because that's just too much. It's too much of an incursion into the openness principle to take the, the, the limited, preconditioned ban in 648 and to throw it. What happens now is we have 
all the hearings that are before, once the trial judge is appointed, all the hearings, all banned. It's, it's really quite remarkable, regardless of prejudice, regardless of any Dagenet considerations, the infringement um, could not be harsher in my respectful submission. That's why Parliament would do that. My, Mr. Burnett, can I ask you, um, this was before Dagenet, um, and you've referred to they would get a, a discretionary ban instead. Can you remind me what the availability was for a discretionary ban at the time 645 was enacted? Uh, yes, indeed. Um, the, uh, the, um, the inherent jurisdiction to issue publication bans goes right back to the, the beginning of common law. And, 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 and um, while Dagenet helped us uh, to um, put that in a framework that was, that was, that was in, in keeping with the, the charter balancing that is needed, um, um, neither it nor McIntyre were, were, the, were the beginning of that. There was always publication bans. In fact, the argument was that publication bans were given too readily, um, always preferring fair, fair trial rights over openness rights in that, in that earlier. Actually, that's where I kind of was going. I thought it was basically focused on trial rights um, at the time, but in any event, I, I can't remember what it was now before Dagenet. <laughs> well, indeed. It, it, the, um, um, you know, what Dagenet was critical of in the previous law was its tendency to treat rights as hierarchical. And, and, it, and it didn't mean that publication bans were just always given when asked for. It, it means that publication bans were more readily given when there was, for example, speculative concerns of harm without real demonstration of a, risk, of a serious risk of harm. And, uh, and so there was, you know, Certainly, law on that, but but it was it was um, so 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 the, so the availability of those bans, although the test has changed, was was present and must be assumed. Parliament is assumed to know the law. Parliament is assumed to not make mistakes, and that would be, have been present in the mind of um, of of uh, Parliament. I'd like to, just before you move to your next topic, bring you all the way back to Justice Obonsuin's question about ambiguity. And I, I didn't understand your answer, my, my own failing perhaps, but the, the ambiguity that we worry about, is it not under Bell Expressed View and, and under the modern approach, the one that reveals itself once the process of interpretation has been undertaken. And so you're speaking about ambiguity in the text, which may or may not be there, and a dispute that you have with your friends about whether it may or may not be there. Surely the question that we have to ask ourselves is whether by However, what, so Justice, reading from Justice uh, Iacobucci, one must consider the entire context of a provision before one can determine if it is reasonably capable of multiple interpretations, which for him is the defining feature of an ambiguity. So, so when does, don't we have to go through all the steps before we decide whether or not there's an ambiguity? I agree. 
it's certainly it's it, it, it's it, it, it ambiguity doesn't arise because counsel disagree and ambiguity arises because the court has determined in its interpretation that there is a genuine ambiguity right and so to answer when justice obanswin raises other principles of interpretation say restrictive interpretation of penal provisions or charter values that, that all of that arises only once you get to the conclusion at the end of the day that there are two reasonable two or more reasonable interpretations because there's an ambiguity right well, and, I, and one of the lessons of what's come out here may be that there's no ambiguity when you take into account text context and purpose I would only disagree on one aspect uh, justice and that is the, the, the conclusion that there's ambiguity is not the final. It, 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 it's, it's along the process of logic the court needs to go through. There's a determination at, at a certain point that, that the, if, if the court decides it, that the words are ambiguous. We know from the law that that triggers the next question, which is, okay, well then we need, if that's the case, we now need to inject into the analysis, being a penal statute, that consideration and 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 my colleague will be dealing with this but and injected into the situation how the whether a charter friendly interpretation versus a non-charter inter interpretation apply so 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 that i'm we're maybe saying the well, there's thing. no disagreement there but you still have to conclude as to an ambiguity before you get to those points Indeed. right okay I, I, I and entirely, so i entirely agree okay and can i look at Oh, I'm sorry. Go no, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. No, I was just reminded you that uh, you have 15 minutes left, and uh, you you informed us that um, your colleague would take uh, 15 minutes to argue. So, uh, anyways, I did it's indeed. Your, it's did your indeed. decision, but Justice Martin has a, has a question for you. Yes, I, I have a question and, a, and a, a question comment. The first is, you you ask at the end of your factum to interpret information in a narrow fashion based on prejudice, and I just wonder how you how you will differentiate and how you would ask the court to differentiate those pre um, or those kinds of motions that create prejudice versus those that don't so that's my big question I'll keep my um, comment for later yes the um, the there's the secondary issue that I believe that's a clash in the jurisprudence that I believe we would have been remiss not to raise which is what does information mean and, 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 the, and, there's, and there's decisions that say it, it must only mean prejudicial information, decisions that say it's only information that would ordinarily arise, and so forth, and there's ones that say it's all information. A, a principled approach, looking at particularly charter values, would, would, I say, lead to it being prejudicial information. And you can only decide that on a case-by-case. -case. And so you're, you're into, effectively, a Dagenet Sherman kind of motion for each of those and, and to, to put it in the air and say well a, a change of venue is or is not it might depend on the evidence supporting the change of venue motion and so and so you're right back to those hearings and now before I before I turn it over I'll also just add this that issue uh, and however it's resolved um, in practice is um, is a very secondary issue it doesn't solve the bigger issue uh, and in practice the, the idea of, of sending media back to ask, well, can we please publish this and, and, and a summary being given, as we know from the case law, and I've set it up in my factum, 
it, it's resulted in very little further openness. It, 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 it's, it's, a, it's, it's an important word to, de to, to determine, but it's not one that, that, that solves our problem at all. It's not, it's not the, the solution that allows us to all walk away and feel, feel like we've solved the problem at all. Um, I'll turn it over to my colleague, Mr. Coles. Justice, Justices. The decision under appeal, the trial judge determined that she was bound by a decision out of British Columbia called Malik in 2002 out of the Air India uh, bombing that uh, Justice, Justice Josephson there reached an interpretation of 648-1, a proposive interpretation that found that the 648-1 ban is applicable to the 645 sub-5 hearings. And in that decision, in the case is uh, canvassed by the trial judge, and as Justice Kassir has been, uh, I understand, intimating, there may well be some ambiguity in 648 sub-1 under the modern approach. We say that there isn't, but if there is, and that there are more than one or multiple interpretations of this section, that the words can bear, that we don't have to twist them to reach a result, then we say that this section must be interpreted in a manner that is charter compliant. And this court has said in, in a more or less unbroken line of authority since McIntyre that court openness is a hallmark of our democracy and that various justices writing an Edmonton journal being a good one have espoused the benefit to the trial process of free reporting on what happens, especially in criminal courts. It, it's good for the polity, it's good for civic society, it creates accountability, there's educational aspects. And that above all else, secrecy should be the exception and not the rule. And yes, my friends will remind the court that of course there are specific instances, limited instances, the principle of openness must give way to a publication ban or secrecy, those should be limited. What happened in this case is that the public was blindfolded for 15 months when more than a dozen pre-impanelment hearings occurred, many of which were relatively mundane, were procedural in nature, and they certainly were not prejudicial to the accused person. But the public could have access to the courts, I guess? Yes, Chief Justice. Isn't, the public, that, isn't that part of the open court principle? It, it is a fundamental tenet of the open court principle that our courts are open. However, Justice Corey, or it may have been Justice Wilson in, in Edmonton Journal, reminded us the ability, especially in a time of COVID in 2021, and I, I don't know, Chief Justice, if in fact members of the public did have frequent or, or robust access in any event to the courtroom, that is not sufficient in most cases, that the public is informed through media's open reporting of what is happening in the courts, how courts are deciding matters, how accused persons are being treated how judges and, and lawyers and police officers and other justice system participants 
are participating or, or, or acting. So for example, one of the earlier pre-impanelment motions was an application for a witness outside of Canada to give video testimony. That occurred under a 648 sub 1 ban. Nothing to do with the evidence to be heard eventually before the trial, nothing that would prejudice an accused person, but of public interest. Witnesses from other countries appearing by video in a courtroom in New Westminster. If there's ambiguity in section 648 that would permit that application and the reasons for judgment to be made known to interested persons or to be shrouded for secrecy for a period of over a year, Sharp tells us that if there's ambiguity, the court can look to two things. That one, it's the presumption that legislation is uh, consistent with the Charter. And that two, the section should be read in a way that is consistent with the Charter. And in this case, that means respect for Section 2B, rights of free expression. And the fact that this legislation was enacted in 1972 before the Charter was enacted, does it make any difference? Well, Justice, um, Section 645 sub 5 was enacted in 1985. And, and that, as, as my colleague has addressed, is, is one of potentially, although that's, that's not conceded by the media, an issue of ambiguity, that in 1985, in a post-charter era, Parliament did have a decision. Will we expressly incorporate a publication ban on pre impanelment hearings? A publication ban when jurors have not been selected, they have not been challenged for cause, they have not sworn an oath, they have not received any direction from a trial judge. There was a decision not to include an automatic sweeping publication ban that would, that would, would capture, and in this case did capture, applications as benign as a witness testi uh, testifying by video. Let, let's take that example. If I were to ask you, and I, and I don't know the answer to this, Mr. Cole, so you, you'll, you'll help me. It, so that motion, I presume, was made for evidence on commission in under 709 of the code. Would that be, using the criterion in 645.5, be a matter that would ordinarily or necessarily be dealt with in the absence of the jury after it had been sworn? Well, Justice, that was, um, that was an application that, of course, uh, we weren't present for, and the ruling was oral, so we don't have a copy for it. I would expect, in the usual course, a trial judge would make decisions on the method of how and when witnesses testify um, with an impaneled jury. Is your question in a pre 645 My question is, the, the, the argument has been made yes. that following the enactment of 645, yes. 648 should be read subject to a, cri a criterion that's announced at 645.5 which would be you ask yourself whether the matter would ordinarily or necessarily be dealt with in the absence of the jury after it has been sworn. And one of the, you may have followed the hearing yesterday, one of the issues that came up was, 
well, what does that include or not include? And I'm asking you if your example right. falls inside of it or outside of it. I, I think that does, uh, Justice, revert back to one of the justices referred to this as a gray area of, of what ordinarily and necessarily mean. Um, I, I don't know the specific facts of this application, but I imagine it's very fact-driven. Uh, whether a witness needs to appear by video for, for COVID reasons or travel reasons or health reasons may come up before impanelment. It may be well known that a certain witness is appearing from an institution or a hospital and is unable to travel, maybe for COVID reasons, or, or it, uh, as it sometimes does in trials, it may come up the day of the I morning. I guess the trial. question more generally yes. is, uh, are there such motions which would fall outside of the criterion mentioned in 645.5. I mean, one that comes to my mind, it might not be a good one, is the language of the accused. So when an accused uh, makes a request, an application uh, for a trial, for proceedings in, the official, in an official language, uh, the code at 5.30 says it must be done no later than the time of the appearance of the accused at which the trial date is set. It, the, the, the temporal dimension is set before the jury would be impaneled, so it looks like it doesn't fall within 645.5. I'm trying to, 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 to understand in my mind what, what is the significance of the intrusion on to, to trial, uh, sorry, to open the open court principle, as it as it's proposed by the other side, is it a, is it a, is it wall to wall carpeting? Everything that happens is going to be captured, or are there ex exceptions, or is there a criterion? And that's the question. Justice Kassir, the the case law, I think, evidences a confusion by trial judges. Um, uh, over what carve votes there might be. And Justice, you identified one in the code that I confess I wasn't familiar with. There may be an express set of narrow exceptions that, that are outside of 645 sub 5, and that no party could try and shoehorn those matters into a 645 sub 5 ban, assuming um, for the argument uh, for the sake of arguments captured by 648 sub 1. But I think the experience, or my submission anyway, is the experience of trial courts across the country, and certainly is set out amply in the reasons, is that, as Justice Obonsuin mentioned earlier, uh, once a judge is appointed as a trial judge, much of the work is done pre-impanelment, and the cases seem to evidence that there's a wide variety of applications that are done routinely before trial judges pre-impanelment that out of abundance of caution or otherwise are all treated as subject to a section 648 sub 1 ban and there is more of a tension on whether it's a information is to be read as prejudicial information or evidentiary information or all information and again as my colleague Mr. Burnett mentioned a moment ago there is uncertainty there too. Mr. Koch, I'm Yes, Sorry. Justice. We, we started with the opening words of uh, 648 sub 1 this morning, and we spent much of the time talking about the interpretation of 645 5. 
And if we focus on 645.5 for a moment, and we think of it as a provision that gives the trial judge jurisdiction, so it deems matters that would ordinarily or necessarily be dealt with in the absence of the jury to be part of the trial, as if it were after the jury was impaneled. And if we think of 645.5 that way, isn't what's relevant in 648 the prohibition about any portion of the trial which would ordinarily arise after the jury, um, that, that, that the jury would not be present after it was told to separate? So if we start with 645.5 and it's deemed to be a phase of the trial as if it came after the jury had been given permission, then isn't that a way to actually look at them very harmoniously? Justice, that interpretation could yield that result, but we say that 645 sub 5 doesn't deem in that way. We say it's read the other way, which is the, the trial judge may deal with matters that otherwise would require a jury to be selected, impaneled, sworn, instructed, and separated. It, it does, the words do not mean that all of those things, all of those concepts that are set out in 631, this is all part 20. Yes, yes. It's not just words. Yeah, Justice, absolutely. And, and, and I do not for a moment want to leave you with the impression that either myself or, or Mr. Burnett are advocating a strictly, strictly literal interpretation. However, Part 20 deals with various concrete provisions from 631 to 643. And that, that, is, that is the immediate and necessary context, and that is what informs the selection and functioning of, of a jury trial. Thank you very much. Thank you, Justice. Justices. The court will take its morning break. 15 minutes. Please be seated. Mr. Williams. Good morning, Chief Justice, Justices, here on behalf of the BC Civil Liberties Association, and we make two submissions. Uh, first, this court should confirm, as it has before, that the open court principle often promotes the right to a fair trial. And many decisions and arguments on the scope of Section 648 portray the need to, to balance the open court principle and the right to a fair trial. That balancing often implies there's a trade-off between the two. For example, it implies that if we have more openness than we must or might have less fairness. 
And we say it's more nuanced than that. Not only is there no hierarchy of rights, as you heard from Mr. Burnett this morning, there is also not a zero-sum trade-off between openness and fairness. To the contrary, openness often promotes fairness. This court should confirm and consider that when addressing the effect of and ultimately the scope of Section 648. Our second submission is that if the scope of Section 648 is ambiguous, then this court should construe it strictly because Section 648 is penal legislation. That has been canvassed already this morning, and I want to focus on our first submission, and I want to be clear. It's uncontroversial that openness is valuable for a great many reasons. You heard on that subject from Mr. Coles this morning. For example, the right of the public to be informed on judicial proceedings is a critical feature of our justice system. But, but our submission is openness is valuable, including because it often promotes the right to a fair trial. The very thing sometimes said to be in conflict with the open court principle, or at least it requires balancing, in fact, often benefits from that open court principle. And this court has held time and again that restricting openness can harm trial fairness. We see that in Dagenet, we see that in Mentuck, we even see some of that in Toronto Star newspapers where this court nevertheless upheld the constitutionality of the publication ban relating to bail hearings in Section 517. And of course, we see that in the Charter itself, where Section 11D guarantees not just a fair hearing, but a fair and a public hearing. For example, as this court recognized in Dagenet, avoiding publication bans, among other things, increases the chances of individuals coming forward with new information relevant to a matter, reduces the risk of perjury, and prevents state misconduct by placing the criminal justice process under public scrutiny. Other cases have also recognized that permitting parties to challenge jurors on the basis of information promotes trial fairness more than banning the publication of that information would. In paragraph 15 of our factum, we give the example of the Kosserine case from Ontario, where there are three accused, one pleads guilty shortly before jury selection, and the other two seek a publication ban over the guilty plea until their trial concludes. And the court refuses, it finds that fairness is better served by allowing publication so counsel could challenge prospective jurors to see how, if at all, the guilty plea might affect their views of the remaining two accused. All of that improves, not harms, trial fairness, and all of those benefits exist even on pretrial applications where the jury has not yet been selected. Perjury is a concern whether the jury has been selected or not, and the risk of, risk of state misconduct does not arise only once a jury is impaneled. We didn't only look at this court's decisions a few weeks ago and have assured to see that sometimes state misconduct will be the very subject of a pretrial application. Now, as you heard already, it is true that sometimes we need to limit openness to protect trial fairness. And it's also true that sometimes publication bans may have no effect on trial fairness one way or the other. No one takes issue with that. But Section 648 is not Section 517. In this case, it's not Toronto Star newspapers. Uh, it's been alluded to this morning already. We're not interpreting a provision that applies only at, at bail hearings or to a narrow slice of applications. We're interpreting a provision that potentially applies to a great many applications dealing with a wide variety of potential information. When considering those pre-selection applications, it may well be easiest to think of the hypothetical application about the confession or the other potentially prejudicial evidence. But given the blanket application of Section 648 that some parties propose and some lower courts have adopted, I say we need to consider far more than simple admissibility applications. We need to consider constitutional, constitutional challenges, including those that don't deal with the admissibility of evidence. Of course, in this case, you have the example of the court below striking down Section 486.4 sub 3 of the Criminal Code and other statutory publication ban. But then those reasons being withheld, not being published for months because of the other ban in Section 648 that is the subject of this hearing. 
Of course, we also need to consider Jordan applications for excessive delay under Section 11B of the Charter, applications for particular severance, government-funded counsel, changes of venue, and so on. A blanket publication ban over all information used at all of those applications and many more will have diverse effects on trial fairness. A blanket application of Section 648 may sometimes promote trial fairness. Sometimes it may have no effect on trial fairness, but I say often it will harm trial fairness. And regardless of the effect on trial fairness, every application of Section 648 limits openness. So if Section 648 applies to all pre-selection applications and all information, there will be circumstances where Section 648 harms openness for no benefit to fairness, and there will be circumstances where Section 648 harms both openness and fairness. And I say this court should hesitate before concluding that was what Parliament intended or that is what is necessary to read Section 648 in harmony with the rest of the code. Thank you. Thank you very much. Mr. Martin. <clears throat> Chief Justice and Justices, I'm going to uh, try to be about 20 minutes in my part of the respondent's hour. And I'm going to address the broad issue in this appeal of whether Section 648 Sub 1 applies to any part of the trial before jury selection. I say that it does, and obviously we know that the modern principle uh, that needs to be brought to bear here involves an analysis of text, context, and purpose. At the heart of Section 648 Sub 1, I say, is an automatic, mandatory, and temporary ban on any portion of the trial at which the jury is not present. When we look at context, uh, in my submission, that includes legislative history, Section 648 sub 1, uh, or its predecessor at least, was enacted at a time when the trial did not start until the accused was put in the charge of the jury. The purpose of this section was and is to protect trial fairness by keeping inadmissible, misleading, and prejudicial information from improperly reaching and influencing the jury. The purpose remains the same today, but the context is slightly different because the trial now starts earlier by virtue of Section 645.5 and Part 18.1. Another part of context is related provisions. In addition to 645.5 and Part 18.1, uh, I say Section 648 Sub 1 is part of a broader mandatory publication deferral scheme in the criminal code that starts at the bail stage continues through the preliminary inquiry and through the end of the evidence, submissions, and jury instructions at trial. So I want to focus in my submissions on how the interpretation that's urged by the appellants in this case is a contextual and would lead to consequences that defeat the purpose of Section 648.1 and the larger scheme that it fits into. Before doing that, though, I do want to respond to the submissions that we just heard from the intervener, uh, particularly the argument they focused on, which is the uh, argument that there's not a zero-sum trade-off between fairness and openness. And in my submission, uh, paragraph 37, which I'm not asking you to turn up, but it's at tab four of my condensed book, um, contains a passage that is relevant here. Um, there, Justice Yakabuchi said that a trial judge faced with an application for a discretionary publication ban would improperly apply the test if he or she relied on the right to a public trial to the disadvantage of the accused. 
So in other words, the court there said it would be wrong to rely on the advantages of court openness to an accused as a reason to deny a discretionary ban where it's the accused who's asking for a ban to protect uh, their fair trial rights. In my submission, a similar principle should be applied here in interpreting Section 648.1. 648.1 exists because Parliament recognizes there is a tension between fairness and openness in the relevant context that the section deals with, which is parts of jury trials where the jury is absent. In this context, where this tension exists, Section 648.1 places a temporary restriction on openness in order to protect trial fairness. And it does so automatically in my submission to promote trial efficiency. As with a discretionary ban, I say it would be improper to rely on the benefits of openness to an accused in interpreting this statutory ban in a way that diminishes the protections it's designed to give to accused persons. Don't we just, uh, at this stage of the interpretive exercise, really just, we're not into an, uh, an analysis of uh, charter values or, I mean, we're just reading the words and identifying what the purpose is. So we can't really look to those sorts of values, even though they may inform the purpose. We're just reading the words and reading them in context and having regard to their purpose. That's all we're doing at this stage, right? Yes, I agree. We're in the modern approach to statutory interpretation, looking at text, context, and purpose. And those sorts of values that the intervener was talking about only arise if at the end of that process there's an ambiguity. I say there's not, but I did want to make that point in response to their argument. Can I ask you a little bit more about context? And, and that is that um, I'm sure everyone listened to uh, yesterday's hearing. Uh, the uh, advocate for La Presse said, uh, today's uh, fish is wrapped in yesterday's newspaper. And I guess when I start to think about the impact of information that may be available um, on juror uh, impartiality, um, that's not the case anymore in the world. Uh, whatever is reported remains. Uh, we, we don't have um, uh, things being thrown out like newspapers or, or whatever. There is a durability of whatever is reported. Do we take that into account at all? Is that part of context? Should we be worried about what happens before the jury's impaneled? I, I think that is part of the context that has to be taken into account and part of what I think we talk about when we talk about the um, import of this ban and how it would cover, um, as my friend mentioned, some 15 months of pretrial litigation. That's in keeping with the statutory scheme we're talking about in my submission because uh, obviously that starts with 517 at the very beginning of a criminal case and continues all the way through the end of trial. And um, we also know from Dagenet and other cases that Part of the concern that um, motivated Parliament here uh, in my submission is the um, particularly prejudicial impact of sustained intense pretrial publicity over a long period of time. And if we look um, even at this case, um, we have uh, a very well-known, essentially household name victim. We have very serious, uh, heinous allegations. Um, and so that is exactly the sort of circumstance where sustained intense pretrial publicity for over a year leading up to trial could have a real impact on trial fairness in my submission. And that is something that uh, can be taken into account as part of the context. And can this, I, uh, sorry. 
Well, I was going to ask you if you can also at some point um, address the issue of when can a trial judge um, um, decide that some information can be made public. We have many examples where a trial judge will say, well, the fact of the application or the final result or some aspect of it can be made public. If you are, if your interpretation prevails, uh, on what basis would a trial judge um, make those kinds of orders, deciding that some information can be made public? So if I you can just address that at some point. I can answer that now. I think this case offers a good example of that. Um, the appellants refer to the constitutional challenge they brought, the result of which um, at the end of the day was that Amanda Todd's name could be published in connection with the charges in this case. And so um, the upshot is that was now part of the reporting around this. If there were no uh, information released from the court about the fact it had made that ruling, that could lead to conclusion to confusion because there might be um, people wondering how that was happening if this ban was in effect and so um, the judge here made a sort of a limited direction that just the outcome of that hearing could be published just to address i think that confusion that would otherwise arise and that might be in my submission the sort of limited uh, type of circumstance where a judge could um, put some information out there just because well, otherwise consequences yeah. flow naturally from a decision that's being made and people not understand why um, they're hearing some things but not others. Well, I, I understand all the practical reasons why a judge might decide. I, I was just wondering if you could give us where the source of that, um, the principles upon which that would override a prohibition and what would be the the, the basis upon which it, it would be inherent jurisdiction. Um, uh, I was getting at that rather than, um, you know, this is a case where obviously it made sense. I was thinking of it from a, a legal framework. Yes, I think it would have to lie in inherent jurisdiction because otherwise the ban is comprehensive. It's no information about any portion of the trial. And so it would have to be limited and narrowly uh, tailored to those circumstances where a decision is made, consequences flow from it, and some information, uh, limited information, has to go out along with those consequences just so that the public is aware of what's going on. Um, so just returning to the uh, mandatory publication deferral scheme. Um, actually, before I get there, I want to talk about how- can a how judge rely on the inherent jurisdiction to, have to, uh, to sort of go ahead, go, go behind, go, uh contrary to a statute though. I mean, this goes to the issue of the breadth because um, it, it's almost like you're conceding that the ban would be overbroad. We're not dealing with a constitutional challenge here. But one could say, well, it may be overbroad. There may be lots of non, it doesn't, Parliament hasn't asked about prejudicial or non-prejudicial information. It's just said information. And perhaps it's overbroad, but, and perhaps there is a reason for that overbreadth because it, kind of eliminates the need for the trial judge in the busy days of trying to get the thing on to be adjudicating these sorts of engaging in these sorts of inquiries. So your answer to Justice Karakatsanis, um, I guess, almost concedes a sort of overbreadth. Uh, but I wonder whether if it is, a, whether the answer is actually that it's subject to the prohibition because the prohibition is clear and if it is overbroad, that's to be dealt with another day. But, and maybe there is a reason for the overbreadth because 
it's, it is an efficiency measure. That is another answer, Justice Jamal, and I think it's, <laughs> that wasn't the one I gave. Um, but I think that's, that's a fair reading as well. I mean, no information means no information in my submission. And so um, there's an argument to be made that what the trial judge did here was improper, but then you have the situation where suddenly Amanda Todd's name is in the news and people might be wondering why, if they're paying close enough attention to know that there's also this publication ban. Well, it doesn't, I mean, isn't part of the answer is that kind of information that would be told to the jury, even if it's in the middle of a jury trial. There are times when, I mean, by the very terms of the, I, mean, I didn't want to take you up on your answer, but it is part of the problem we have. The interpretation is so broad that, or potentially so broad, that it needs to be thought of in terms of the reality that, in fact, it doesn't always cover absolutely everything. I, th I think that's fair, Justice Karakastanis. Um, and um, I don't mean to dodge the question, but I expect my learned friend on behalf of the Crown will be taking this sort of issue up in greater detail. I want to focus in the rest of my time just on the big picture here. Sorry, I just have one quick question. So with regard to what we heard yesterday, the Crown's position was different. And um, seemed to I seem to understand under 551.3, they were saying, well, whatever falls under uh, sub G and H, and uh, what's your view on that if uh, we're not in agreement with a broad ban? Um, that goes to the issue, I think, of what constitutes the trial for purposes of 648.1 and any information about any portion of the trial. And uh, the trial is a term that takes its meaning from context. It's a flexible term that depends on the context in which it's being used. Uh, and this court's jurisprudence says um, really it the trial starts where the accused's vital interests are engaged at any particular stage. And so for purposes of 648.1, I would um, suggest that jurisprudence should guide this court. And also, um, because it appears in this provision, we can look at the purpose of the provision in deciding the scope of what counts as the trial too. The purpose of the provision is to keep misleading, inaccurate, prejudicial information from the jury, so where those um, concerns arise is where the trial starts in my submission. And that would be before, um, that would be more expansive than the um, Quebec Crown was arguing yesterday. If section 648.1 does not apply to applications in voir dire before jury selection, that is if, if the uh, appellant's interpretation prevails, then information from those proceedings would be um, publishable subject to a discretionary ban. We agree on that. This in my submission would frustrate the larger mandatory publication deferral scheme that section 648.1 fits into. Suppose an accused is charged with a serious high profile crime and they've given a confession to the police after a lengthy interrogation. And I know my friend says confessions will always be captured by Dagenet Mentuck. Maybe they will often be. I don't think that's automatic and it still takes time to litigate these things. We know that this confession may or may not be true. It also may or may not be admissible at trial. If published, it could certainly be prejudicial. So could the fact that the accused opposed its admission into evidence. Under the appellant's interpretation, there would be a mandatory publication ban at the bail stage, assuming the accused asked for a ban and the accused would have to be told uh, they have the right to ask for a ban. 
It would automatically and mandatorily be banned at the preliminary inquiry stage, but a full Dagenet Mentuck Sherman Estate application would be, would be required when it comes to the actual pretrial voluntariness voir dire. And critically on the appellant's interpretation, the accused would only face this risk of having um, these things be published if the voluntariness voir dire happens before trial rather than within the trial after the jury is impaneled. So essentially you have ban, ban, no ban, back to ban. And in my submission that is uh, incoherent and not uh, logical. There's no reason 648.1 should apply only after the jury is impaneled and not before. Once impaneled, the jurors will have taken an oath to decide the case based only on the evidence they've heard in court. They will have received a caution from the trial judge not to listen to or read any outside information. Uh, so I ask why they should be protected against this outside information only after these protections are in place and not before. Put another way, why should the accused lose the automatic protection of Section 648 because they litigate a legal or evidentiary issue before jury selection but not after? My next point well, is... Well, I guess the practical point there, I mean, if we take the Alberta experiences, when, when if there's no ban and you're uh, having a motion about the voluntariness of the confession, the ban just is part of that motion and it's efficient. Well, that's my next point, is that respectfully it's not efficient in my submission. Um, the parties in the courts have limited time and resources. Uh, in my submission, it would be highly inefficient for every pretrial application to routinely involve a collateral application for a discretionary ban. The requirements uh, for a discretionary ban are stringent and they have to be brought to bear on individual pieces of evidence. You can't really have an omnibus Dagenet Mentuck Sherman Estate uh, application in my submission. That's not the way it works. So it would add significant cost and delay to pretrial proceedings, um, which are now permitted under 645.5. And it would be antithetical to this court's decision in Jordan and other jurisprudence that emphasizes the need for fair and timely justice. Also, without the automatic protection of 648.1, financial constraints, concerns about timeliness, and simple fear of prejudicial pretrial publicity may cause some accused people not to bring certain applications in the first place. The accused may have to choose between his or her right to make full answer in defense and the right to a trial before an impartial jury. An accused may wonder why they should bother trying to exclude evidence under the charter if the fact that that evidence exists is maybe published in any event. In other cases, accused may decide to wait until after jury selection uh, to bring applications, making trials less, affair, less efficient. Excuse me. Um, or these types of concerns may actually influence an accused person's election as to the mode of trial, forcing another unpalatable sort of choice between the right to a trial before a jury uh, and the right to make full answer in defense. So for those reasons, when interpreted under the modern approach, uh, having regard to its text, context, and purpose, in my submission, Section 648.1 does apply to trial proceedings before jury selection. And subject to any questions, I'll turn it over to my learned friend. You, sorry, do you mind if I, your, your concluding sentence 
what you left unstated, or did you leave it unstated? Uh, 648 uh, carries with it no ambiguity. Once we get to the end of the, we the full the analysis, end. yes, that's what I say. Good. Chief Justice, Justices, as this court has identified in both the hearing yesterday and today, there are two key issues for this court to resolve. The first is what is the temporal scope of Section 648? And second, assuming that you conclude that it does apply to pretrial proceedings, then what is captured by that ban? And I'll address each issue in turn, but at the outset, the respondent, His Majesty the King, submits that following application of the modern approach to statutory interpretation, Section 648.1 is not ambiguous and applies to any portion of the trial that occurs in the absence of the jury, and I will address what we submit forms part of the trial. Turning first to the temporal scope, as this Court has identified in its many questions, there are two key clauses. The opening passage that the appellant almost exclusively relies upon and then the phrase, no information regarding any portion of the trial, which the respondents place primary emphasis on. To determine temporal scope, I submit you need to look at the text, the purpose, the historical context, the modern context, and the context of the provision within the scheme of publication bans in the code as a whole. As my friend Mr. Martin has already submitted, the objective of the provision was to prohibit publication of any information before any portion of the trial was heard in the absence of the jury before they retired to deliberate. The clear purpose was to protect the right to a fair and impartial jury trial. In my submission, the historical context, which has been referenced at various points during the two hearings, has two aspects. The first is that prior to 1985, a trial began when the indictment was preferred before a court constituted to hear the trial which for jury trials meant after jury impanelment. What we now call and refer to as pretrial proceedings only happened after the jury was impaneled. And, and that would be a more accurate term, but the, the, the term we now use is pretrial proceedings. But in fact, those are the proceedings that would have occurred uh, after jury impanelment prior to 1985. The second contextual factor which explains the need for the opening clause is that historically once impaneled, a jury had to stay together until the trial was completed. And even once Parliament gave uh, trial judges the discretion to permit a jury to separate, juries didn't always separate. And so in circumstances where the jury did not separate and all proceedings occurred after jury impanelment, there would be no need for a publication ban. And in my submission, that explains the opening language of Section 648 sub 1 in 1972. And I believe, as Justice Karakatsanis observed in one of her questions uh, to one of my friends, uh, this is not a condition precedent, but it is a description of when the trial began in 1972. However, 
Since the enactment of Section 648, and this has been widely discussed over the last two days, there have been substantial changes to criminal procedure that impact when the trial begins. And we've heard about the enactment of Section 645.5, and to add to that, I would add Part 18.1 of the Code, which authorizes a case management judge to hear matters as a trial judge. And as Justice Karakatsanis has as well observed into, in, in her questions to my friends, these are the provisions that give uh, jurisdiction to trial judges to hear matters in advance of the jury being impaneled. They're jurisdictional provisions. And we submit that the opening words of Section 648 have to a certain extent been overtaken by the fact that uh, judges are now permitted to hear matters prior to jury impanelment, and juries are now routinely given permission to separate. And so again, we submit uh, that this is not a conditioned precedent, but a description of when the trial begins. Many matters are now heard before the impanelment of the jury, which are considered to be part of the trial, and which engage the vital interests of the accused. However, in our submission, the overriding purpose of Section 648 has not changed. All that has changed is when the trial begins. The purpose of Section 648 has you're, remained you're on, consistent. Excuse me. I'm sorry to cut you off because you're on quite a roll and, and, and good for you. But I'm, I'm interested in the expression, um, engage the vital interests of the accused, which I think is Justice Martin and the Ontario Court of Appeal. Yes. And I wonder what, what, re, what specific relevance is it to, to, the, to, to understanding the, the, the language in 648? Yes, Justice Kassir, and that will largely form the second part of my submissions now. But when we look at the scope of Section 648 sub 1, and we look at the scope of what the publication ban protects, it's no information regarding any portion of the trial that's heard in the absence of the jury. And so in my submission, in order to determine the scope of what is protected, we need to look at what is, uh, forms part of the trial. And in my submission, in order to determine what forms part of the trial, we do need to go back to Justice Martin and Hertrich or some of this court's jurisprudence. And that's where that phrase, vital interest of the accused, comes from, and also any decisions that bear on the substantive conduct of the trial. So that's a prelude to my second set of submissions, but that, that's why I'm using that phrase. Yeah. And I'll be submitting to the court that that is the way in which uh, we can determine what is, is covered by 648 sub 1. Before you get into your second set of submissions, I'll ask you the same question that I asked before. If it captures all, any information at which the jury is not present, then where does the jurisdiction for a, for a judge um, hearing these pre-hearing motions come from to allow part of that information to be published? So there's two questions. The first would be to whether or not it meets the test, vital interest of the accused, substantive conduct of the trial. That would be the first assessment to determine whether or not it forms part of the trial. Um, it is clear, and we've taken this position in our factum, that the plain language is clear, uh, that no information means no information. And uh, certainly a number of courts have, have rejected the interpretation that there's not a distinction between prejudicial and non-prejudicial information. Um, in terms of the question of judicial uh, summary, uh, the statute is clear, uh, no information shall be published. 
Uh, and so a trial judge would either be doing one of two things, reading an exception into the mandatory ban or relying on their inherent jurisdiction. And the question would be whether a Section 96 judge pursuant to their inherent jurisdiction could determine whether or not they could issue a summary. Um, and I think it would come down to an analysis of, you know, that traditional Jacob article on inherent jurisdiction in terms of whether or not this was a situation in which there could be gap filling. Uh, the other question is whether or not it um, would fall within what we refer to as the ancillary procedural jurisdiction with respect to access to the court records. So what the court looks at, for example, in terms of dealing with access to exhibits or access to court openness. So um, very quickly, having considered that issue, those are two uh, situations in which that okay. might arise. And I would just say, though, that the Jacob article and all of our jurisprudence also recognizes that inherent jurisdiction can be limited by statute. Yes, and I agree with that. Um, and, and, you know, obviously when you look at the, the cases that have considered 648 over the years, judges have taken different approaches to this issue. So, for example, um, in Canadian broadcasting, or what is also often referred to as Santem, Justice Heaney said, you don't even reveal the fact that an application has been made because if you publish the fact that an application has been made or that an accused sought to exclude admissible evidence, then that would cast the accused potentially in a negative light. Um, and the other uh, factor, although concerns have been raised with respect to overbreath, and we're certainly not in a Section 1 analysis in this hearing, but the ban is temporary. Uh, the media can report once the jury has retired. The proceedings are held in open court. And so some of the principles that animate the open court principle continue to be satisfied. You seem to be, to be a, a urging a more um, flexible, discretionary approach pre-empowerment and post-empowerment, because Post-empanelment, the prohibition in 648 is, is, is effectively absolute. It's not a question of applying what is in the vital interest to the accused and so on. And if there's overbreadth there, perhaps, but that again is the choice that Parliament has made and that is to be adjudicated in any later constitutional challenge. But why would it be any less broad pre-trial? Why do we engage in this inquiry as to what engages the vital interests of the accused. Why do we look to uh, inherent jurisdiction, which I have a question mark about? So it, why wouldn't it be just as broad before empanelment as it is after empanelment? Justice Jamal, I agree, um, and, and I should be clear, our, our, our position in our factum is the plain language is clear, no information is no information, and I've only raised these issues in a, a potential response to Justice Kerr-Kazanis. I'm not suggesting that the ban has uh, a less flexible or more flexible application uh, pre-trial, uh, pre if we're gonna use that phrase, and post-trial. I'm not suggesting that. What, I'm, what I was trying to do was to be responsive to uh, Justice Kerr-Kazanis' question. Um, the statute is quite clear, no information is, is no information. Uh, just before moving on to the second part of my submissions, I'll just conclude my submissions with respect to the first part, which is uh, the temporal scope of the Section 648 ban. Um, we submit, uh, which I think should be clear uh, from now in my submissions, that the key interpretive focus when we're looking at the temporal scope of the ban should be on the phrase, any portion of the trial, in order to ensure that the substantive scope of the publication ban remains intact. Um, that interpretation of Section 648.1, uh, 
also allows it to function harmoniously within the scheme of related publication bans in the code. And as you've heard over the last two days together, we submit that sections 517 and 539 um, work together with section 648 sub 1 to create a comprehensive framework uh, to protect the, to the right uh, to a fair and impartial jury trial. And as my friend Mr. Martin submitted to you, absurd results will flow if we have a ban at judicial interim release, we have a ban at prelim, we have no ban during pretrial proceedings, and then we have a ban after the jury is impaneled. And that, that cannot be what Parliament had intended. So then I submit that when Section 648.1 is interpreted uh, using the modern principle of interpretation, uh, it is not ambiguous, and it clearly applies to proceedings uh, that occur prior to jury impanelment. Is, is it, are they at ones? Like, for example, and I think you, you point to the provision in your condensed book and your factum. Take the, the, the preliminary inquiry problem. You can see plainly why you need a publication ban because there's going to be information spoken to at that that's treated as evidence, whether it's admissible at trial or not. And so you can see the real jeopardy for the accused there, whereas that dimension seems to f drift away when we get to to 645 and and 648. Is is to to what extent is I'm, is that part of the analysis? I submit that the same concerns that animate Section 539 also apply at the pretrial stage because there are a wide variety of ways in which voir dires um, are conducted. Uh, some are done on the basis of a paper record. Uh, some are based on submissions of counsel. Uh, sometimes evidence is tendered, which includes hearsay that has not yet been tested on the criminal standard. Uh, often there is reference to witnesses and evidence uh, that is ultimately not called for whatever reason at trial. So there is still the same concerns uh, at the pretrial stage as there is with Section 539 in evidence that has not yet been tested on the criminal standard that could potentially um, uh, result or affect the impartiality of the jury. So in my submission, there isn't a difference at the 648 stage. That, that kind of assumes that there's a one-size-fits-all voir dire that's uh, conducted in the same manner. And certainly that's acknowledged by Justice Doherty in the Aragon case that I referred to. And I, it was also referenced to a certain extent in a footnote in Havisher in this court's recent decision. So the, the same concerns animate at the Section 648-1 stage. I, I think, though, your friends on the other side of this would say that the bans relating to bail hearings, information at bail hearings and at preliminary uh, hearings uh, are bans that are there at the request of the accused. And so they're mandatory at the request of the accused, which is perhaps analogous to a request for a discretionary ban, um, more so than an automatic prohibition. So I guess it's just not as quite as straightforward as, as you set it out because the nature of those other bans are different from the flat-out prohibition in 648. And we submit that the difference is, is at that stage of the proceedings, 517 and 539, they're mandatory on, uh, at the request of the accused, discretionary on application of the Crown. And at that stage, 
uh, no election has yet been made. And so the question of whether or not there's a risk to jury impartiality and whether or not a jury trial is contemplated at that stage falls within the exclusive purview of the accused, the exclusive knowledge of the accused. By the time we get to trial, the election will already have been made. And, and that's the reason uh, for the difference in the automatic versus discretionary versus, um, versus mandatory nature of the bans. If 539 was repealed, would it be caught by 645? A piece. Because I guess part of it has to do with one of the, speaking for myself, one of the arguments that the Crown made yesterday that I found uh, unsettling was the idea of a coherence in the criminal code, that there is in this mass of provisions enacted often piecemeal, and notwithstanding pleas to truly codify the criminal code, um, that we're seeing an imminent rationality uh, that's just not there. And, and so my, I guess my question is, as we go through the interpretive process and slow down on context, which is obviously why you're invoking these provisions, to what degree are we entitled to infer a kind of rational project of parliament? Or is this rather more slapdash? Well, Bell Expressview re requires under the modern approach for the court to consider the provision not only on its own, but harmoniously in the context of related provisions in the scheme and as a whole, and sometimes in related acts, so coherence among statutes. And so in my submission, um, while your observation may well be true about many parts of the code, uh, certainly in Toronto Star, this court certainly saw a coherence between the Section 517 ban and the 539 ban as related measures which protect the right to a fair and impartial jury trial. And in these circumstances, I think it is very difficult to submit that Section 648 sub 1 is not also part of that coherent uh, structure in the code which protects the right to a fair and impartial jury trial. So in this specific case and example, I say yes, there is a coherence uh, that this court needs to take into account with respect to those three provisions. And when I get to later in my submissions where I'm talking about related provisions within the, the jury section of the code, again, yes, the, the court should look at the provisions to ensure uh, both that there's interpretive consistency, but also to ensure that there is coherence among, among related provisions. So then, uh, just turning to the question of whether uh, or what the ban does cover, again, we submit that this question is not answered by 645 sub 5, which is the jurisdictional provision, but rather answered by 648 sub 1, which is the publication ban provision and talks about what is covered by the scope of the ban. And we submit that the question is answered by the phrase, any portion of the trial. And as I alluded to in my earlier response to Justice Kassir, I submit that that question has been answered to a certain extent by this court's own jurisprudence in Basarabas, in Vezina, and Barrow on related sections in, in the same part of the code. And so what this court has said is when we're looking at the question of when um, a trial begins, we, we look at the purpose of the specific section in issue 
And secondly, and this is, is again alludes back to Justice uh, Martin's original comments in Hertrich, whether the accused's vital interests are impacted or whether any decision made bore on the substantive conduct of the trial. And I submit uh, that the purpose of Section 648.1 and these uh, previous cases do support an expansive interpretation of the phrase any portion of the trial in Section 648 sub 1. And so I'll just reference two of those cases very briefly. I know they're familiar to the court. But in Vezina and Cote, this court considered whether an accused was present during the whole of their trial in Section 650 sub 1 which forms part of the jury trial section in the code. And that was a case where there was a challenge for cause uh, to examine jurors for partiality. So something we would ordinarily think occurs before the jury is impaneled, and it does. And Justice Lemaire, as he then was, held that a trial was not limited to the presentation of the case against the accused or to matters that directly affected the decision as to guilt or innocence. Uh, he said that an accused must be present if the vital interests of the accused are an issue. And I submit that this court adopted the same approach in Barrow. Again, it also dealt with Section 650 sub 1. Uh, in that case, again, it was examining members of the jury panel um, by the trial judge uh, to claim exemptions from jury service on grounds of partiality. And given the importance of ensuring a fair and impartial jury trial, uh, Chief Justice Dixon held that the word trial again, should be given an expansive meaning. And so I submit that when a matter is a portion of the trial and is covered by Section 648.1, we have to look to, to this court's own jurisprudence about when a trial begins. And so we need to look at, are the accused's vital interests impacted, or is any decision made which bears on the substantive conduct of the trial? Ms. Rosica, the, in, in, in Vezina and Cote, where uh, uh, Justice Martin's uh, dictum is picked up, the court goes on to say that Justice Martin illustrated aspects that would not be part of a trial on his, on his criterion of vital interest. I'd like to hear you on that because you, I can understand that you're making the case for a broad application of, of 648, but I'd like to know what falls outside of it and, and then of course how, how we go about determining it. I mean, Vital, vital interests uh, uh, could involve the, the, the vital interests of the accused. That, that's, uh, is that an invitation to, for judges to make close calls along the way that, that you can see the, the worry that one might have? So what, what, what's inside and what's outside that for G. Arthur Martin and the rest of us? <laughs> well, I, I submit that this is a workable standard that trial judges are, are well familiar with applying because it's the standard that applies in 475 when an accused absconds from trial. And it also arises still under section 650 sub 1 when we look at whether or not an accused is required to be present in the courtroom. So it's not an unknown standard. It's one, a standard that trial judges are already applying. And by way of answering your question, yesterday uh, my friend Ms. Kleber uh, submitted that you could use the lists, for example, in 551.1 F and G as an example. Um, to be clear, those are good examples, but our position is that what forms a, a portion of the trial extends beyond those two subsections um, and, and in fact could include many of the matters that are listed in, in 551.1 as a whole. And with that, I would include change of venue, but exclude, of course, obviously, guilty pleas and sentencing. Um, 
but of course it would cover things like resolution discussions that might occur, pretrial conferences, um, and of course all the matters that are heard um, in Section 551.1 are heard by the case management judge as the trial judge. Um, and there are also other matters that are not listed specifically in 551.1 that uh, would form part of the trial. How about language of the accused? That strikes me as rather vital to the accused. And yet, if you read the text of the code, it doesn't look like it fits. Um, procedurally, um, my understanding is that um, is addressed at an early stage of the uh, proceedings. Um, and I have I should have looked at the provision over the lunch break, but my understanding is it happens before trial dates are fixed. I know you're saying it's a workable standard and it is in, in light of some of the, the, the cases that come forward, should the accused physically be present and those sorts of things. Um, but um, many people are putting forward um, um, a line between things that are prejudicial or content-based or whatever. Why wouldn't we just say in the, this context, it, it, it's either part of the trial or it isn't? How can it not, how can a change of venue not be part of a trial? How can any of the pretrial motions that are in your friend's opposite factum under paragraph 16, how can they not be seen as, well, pre-impanelment motions? What else are they tied to if they're not tied to a trial? And I agree. I mean, one other option is to um, apply an appellate standard in terms of what would be encompassed as part of the trial from appealing a conviction. That is another approach that could be used. We've referenced this court's jurisprudence because uh, this, this court has already given us guidance on when a trial begins, and it has applied that standard in related sections in the same part. Um, but certainly, for example, uh, when you go back and look at Litchfield, um, Justice Iacobucci and uh, Justice McLaughlin, as she then was, um, were talking about, well, this was heard by the hearing judge before 645, not the trial judge, and if it had been heard by the trial judge, then it could have been appealed um, as part of a conviction appeal in the ordinary course. So, I mean, that is another alternative standard. Um, what I would submit is that um, this court shouldn't create bright line rules. Uh, this is in, this is out. Um, or a bright line list. Uh, because as criminal procedure continues to evolve, there may be future applications that form part of a trial that are not captured in that list. What was considered part of the trial in 1972 is vastly different from what is considered to be part of the trial today. And in my submission, courts and counsel are, are, are quite adept at trying to determine whether or not something is part of the trial. Um, and as we submit in our factum, we also submit that Section 648 also applies to mandatory pretrial conferences pursuant to Section 625.1 sub 2, again, because the vital interests of the accused are engaged, decisions are made in pretrial conferences uh, that bear on the substantive conduct of the trial, um, you know, there are full, frank, and uninhibited discussions with the court about evidence, about applications, about the conduct of the trial. Um, there, are, there is discussion about admissions and whether admissions can or cannot be made, application screening, disclosure issues, um, all of those matters are discussed and in, in some jurisdictions there's also resolution discussions in pretrial conferences. Can, can I ask cause to you to compare the approach that the Crown took to this issue yesterday and today? It's rather perplexing for us. Can you imagine on the heels of one hearing when we're told to look to 645? 
and use that as a criterion. And today we're told to look elsewhere. And not just told, we're told in no uncertain terms because 645.5 is, is off base, it's jurisdictional. I, I, you, you can understand, uh, I'll speak only for myself, that I'm, I'm a little perplexed. Well, it's not uncommon for attorneys general to take different positions on, on legal issues before this court. Um, so certainly this is just one example of that. Um, my friends yesterday um, focused uh, their emphasis on uh, 645.5 and the qualifying words uh, ordinarily or necessarily heard in the absence of the jury. And, and certainly uh, they have taken an approach that many judges uh, over the course of the Section 648 jurisprudence have taken over time. Uh, we take a different position and submit that the scope of the ban is determined by looking at the publication ban provision itself and the words any portion of the trial. It's an issue uh, that many judges have disagreed with over the past 25 years. Uh, it's an issue about which reasonable minds can disagree. And it certainly t offers the court two different interpretive approaches to this provision. But it, it if you'll allow me, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a little more than a difference of opinion between reasonable attorneys general, in that you're both leaning on 645.5 to do some work to explain to us contextually what 648 means, but yet taking different approaches uh, as to how useful 645 is. It, it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's a tough problem to toss into the, toss into the hands of the court. Well, it's uh, issues that uh, ju trial judges have struggled with over the course of the Section 648 jurisprudence as well, Justice Kassir. Um, and I, I think uh, it involves taking a look at that jurisprudence uh, and, and making an assessment as to how one advances its position. In terms of um, applications that may or may not be included... Isn't, isn't there sort of a middle ground and a, a way of reconciling these approaches? Because six, Section 645 can be a jurisdictional provision, and I think it is probably, you'll agree, that. But it, it also uh, asks the question, is the, the question that it asks is, is not uh, the character of this sort of motion, but if it were brought at trial, which 645 deems it to be effectively part of the trial, if it were brought at the trial, is it, would, is it a sort of motion that we dealt with before the jury or not? That's the operative question. And that, that presupposes it's part of the trial, but doesn't require the interpretive work to be done under 648, one applying a, you know, a jurisprudential uh, malleable test about what is part of the trial or not. So there is a, there is a, a, you know, a reconciliation, I think, because that is what, it isn't just a jurisdictional provision, it really defines the, you know, the scope, permitted scope of the prohibition in 648. So isn't that a way of reading the two harmoniously? Uh, the challenge is that ordinarily or necessarily and any part of the trial involve different uh, considerations in my submission. Uh, really what we're focused on is what forms part of the trial and what would happen ab in the absence of the jury because what we're concerned about is whether or not uh, what is occurring in the absence of the jury will impact a fair and impartial jury. Well, but 648.5 doesn't say ordinarily or necessarily be brought at the trial. It says uh, ordinarily or necessarily be dealt with in the absence of the jury after it's sworn. 
So it's presupposing that it would be. But the question then is, if this were brought at trial, would this be the sort of motion that, for which the jury would be excused or not? Right? But it doesn't actually require an analysis of what is the trial. It's presupposing, if it were brought, because that's the language of 645, uh, 5, if it were brought. And then we don't need to engage in a debate about, um, you know, uh, venue motions are necessarily out, because it depends when you bring the ven venue motion, right? It may be out, it may be in, depending on when you bring it. But if you did bring a venue motion at trial, would you excuse the jury? And then that's the question that the trial judge has, or the court has to ask in determining the scope of the ban, rather than would this be injurious to the interests, the vital interests of the accused, which is a much more malleable and debatable standard. Because if we're going to do that, I mean, one might ask, why don't we just get into a Dajne Mentak uh, inquiry? And because we're already into a debate about, uh, you know, salutary and deleterious effects. As I understood my friend's position from yesterday, specifically with respect to change of venue, change of venue wouldn't fall within the scope of the publication ban because it's not an application that's ordinarily or necessarily brought in the absence of the jury in the, because uh, the change of venue motion has to happen before you decide where you're going to send out summons for your jury pool. Um, and so, in, but in my submission, The change of venue motion forms part of the trial and it impacts the vital interests of the accused and so in my submission it is better to approach this issue under any portion of the trial because we have a clear understanding of what uh, forms part of the trial as opposed to necessarily or ordinarily brought in the absence of the jury in my submission it's a more workable standard to be any portion of the trial uh, just before Justice Jamal's question, I, I just wanted to give you an example of, of, of the risk of creating bright line rules. Uh, my friend Mr. Coles gave you the example of an application uh, to have a, a witness testify by video conference. Uh, he, as I understand his submission, says, well, that's a benign application and it should be published. And Justice Kassir, you asked, well, is that under Section 709? It's actually an application that's brought under Section 14.1 or in the case of international witnesses, Section 714.2. Um, but one of the issues that arises in one of those applications, which are sometimes contested and sometimes lengthy, uh, in, result in lengthy applications, is that what is part of what has to be summarized to the court is the nature of the witness's anticipated evidence. And so in this case, the evidence of the witness was briefly summarized for the court. There was more than one witness. And even though orders were granted, some of those witnesses for whom orders were granted and whose evidence was summarized didn't end up testifying at trial for various reasons. So an example of evidence that should not um, be before the jury. In this case as well, um, because of the unique requirements of Dutch law, um, they require a Dutch judge to be present when a witness gives testimony. And so one of the issues that was required to be dealt with was the procedural considerations that arise in these circumstances and that needed to be dealt with so that the Dutch judge would be off camera during the witness testimony and not be visible to the jury. So in this particular case, while um, my, my friends would describe this as a benign motion, it clearly formed part of the trial and is certainly not something that should have been uh, before the jury. 
So we would submit again uh, that there should not be bright line rules, uh, that the, any portion of the trial gives rise to workable, uh, understandable standards in terms of what is and what is not captured by a Section 648 ban. And we do submit that, that trial judges are well equipped to apply the, the vital interests of the accused test. Uh, just in closing and subject to any further questions, I, I would just return um, to the approach that this court cited from the Sullivan text in Alex um, when talking about the modern approach. And what this court cited from uh, Sullivan was, is it plausible? Is the interpretation plausible in that it complies with the legislative text? Does the interpretation promote legislative intent? And does is it acceptable? Uh, does it comply with accepted legal norms and is it reasonable and just? And we submit that the interpretation that has been proposed collectively by the respondents in this case uh, does satisfy all three of those criteria with respect to the modern principle. And we submit that Section 648.1 uh, is not ambiguous, that it applies to pretrial uh, proceedings and that it applies uh, to any portion of the trial at which the jury is not present. Uh, subject to any further questions, those are my submissions. Thank you very much. Any reply? Justices, my learned friend leans heavily on the words any portion of the trial in section 648 and says that that has somehow been modified by section 645. One of the answers is those words follow the precondition I discussed earlier. The second answer, though, is read a little further. It's any portion of the trial at which the jury is not present. You can't have that state of affairs where there has, no, has been no jury selected. The interpretation is inviting a fiction. It's too much of a stretch. Both, both my friends uh, who've spoken uh, also talked about coherence between the different uh, provisions, 517, 539, pre-selection, post-selection. And the reality is that they're, 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 they're quite different. 517, we know from this court's decision in Toronto Star, or the bail hearing ban, uh, is, is only imposed at the request of the accused, uh, but it is also, once it's imposed, it's, it's there very much because of the situation that, it, that an accused sitting uh, in the immediacy of having been arrested and having to deal with bail finds themselves in and the inability of somebody realistically to mount a dash in the emotion at that point. 539, the preliminary hearing ban, also only engaged at the request of the accused. When you look at its language, it only applies to evidence. That's not an information ban. So there's differences between these. Pre-selection, you have to bear in mind at the pre-selection stage, the court still has a line of defense waiting uh, in, its, in its arsenal, and that is the quality control that occurs when a jury is selected and potentially challenged for cause, and the, and the warnings and instructions and oaths that happen at that point. Pre-selection, that hasn't happened. The people are just out there, citizens, hearing a new news story every hour. Post-selection, you have spent that screening option. You're now, I don't, don't want to say pejoratively, stuck. You've got that jury uh, and you must go. And, and it's also much more immediate. 
it's much more, the information somebody would hear that night on the evening news is in a whole different category than something somebody heard three months ago or even two weeks ago in a, in a constant news cycle. And so, and so to sort of say, well, it's all very illogical to have different treatments really is to miss the differences between these, these various points. The, both my friends in oral submissions touched upon and, and, uh, and in their factums emphasized even more that these are temporary bans. There, there will eventually, the information will come out. Well, let's be a little clear on that. Dagenet was a temporary ban. Every ban that is uh, issued to protect the fairness of trial logically ends when the trial ends. But that might be a year. In our case, it was 15 months. So the information in, in all reality is gone. It's, 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 it's nowhere near contemporaneous. And in fact, a lot of it is gone forever because we have what we have in our case is a nice example. We have a few of the rulings that got posted months after the trial ended. Oral rulings all gone. The hearings all gone. The constitutional hearing, for example, two, two days of evidence of Amanda Todd's mother as to why she was speaking publicly and wanted to continue to do so. I mean, all these things lost. So let's not, let's not pretend that temporary or a, or a publication deferral merely means that it'll come out eventually. It won't. And, and, and the portions that do come out are, are vastly belated. Reporters, media are not historians. They're, they're, they're reporters of contemporaneous uh, events in the courts. But would you agree, sir, that uh, 15 months trial is quite exceptional before jury? In big cases, uh, no. I mean, in yeah, Picton was longer than that. Uh, Picton was close to two years. You know, I mean, the big, the big cases, they're, they're all in, in, the, in the category of many, many months. And so, um, you know, so, you know, 15 months, um, I don't think is unusual. Um, and, and, and even if it was six months or seven months, that, that still makes it, it, it it's, it's vastly beyond anything that is, is remotely contemporaneous in terms of in terms of what we're trying to protect here, which is, which is not just the interest of a bunch of media reporters wanting to get news stories, it's the public learning through its eyes and ears, the media, of what has gone on in, in our courts, in His Majesty's courts, um, and, and understanding the, the, the fundamental importance of those. That can never be lost uh, in this analysis and this, I say, attempt to sweep all these things, non-prejudicial things, into a ban. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank counsel for your submissions. The court will take the case under advisement. Thank you.